Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, and we have a special today. We're uh, doing something we've never done for books and business. We have the author of the book with us, so we're all going to talk about the same book. And that book is The Thriving Church, The True Measure of Growth by Dr. Dean Taylor. Welcome. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. So excited to be here with you guys on The Thinklings. Yeah. So we're going to kind of just, we've each come up with some questions that we're interested to know about his book. And uh, so we'll just have a a discussion about The Thriving Church. So who wants to go first? I can. I can start us off. Um, Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Oh. Okay, I knew I was supposed to say something, yeah, I was gonna, and I forgot. Yeah, I was going to remind So you. last week we said, hey, we're going to do a giveaway when we get to 200 Instagram follows. And we've, we're up to, I think, 128. So we have a ways to go, 72 or 71. And I'm looking at the lamp that we're going to give away to someone. And we want to bless you with that lamp. And other things. We'll give you a nice, either a book or a gift card or something like that. Uh, but you need to tell all your friends to go follow the Thinklings on Instagram or Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever social media platform will join next. So, okay. Doug, and my space. Social media. It's going to be MySpace. Yeah, MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with now, now we'll start. Go ahead, Tim. Okay, so um, writing a book is a big endeavor. It's a lot of work. Uh, I'm working on a book, and uh, usually there's something that's driving you. That's, you know, why do you want to write this book? And so why? Why did you pick this topic? Why did you write... Uh, the Thriving Church. I have a friend who happens to be an editor at the publisher uh, where my book was published, The Thriving Church. And so that that kind of helps to have somebody, you know, that you know. And um, she had encouraged me uh, several years ago to think about writing. And in fact, I had preached a, a series of sermons. And she said, hey, you should turn that into a book. And it just never happened. But when... Uh, I transitioned from being a pastor to being a teacher. Just the schedule uh, uh, lended itself more to blocks of time, for example, over the summer when classes are not in session, to do some writing. So I communicated with her again. I said, hey, I'm thinking about this, and had a few topics in mind. And she said, what is your passion? So it was that question that prompted me to narrow it down to this, the, the key passage of Scripture that uh, the thriving church is based on and, and built on, as well as just what what's in my heart. What is it that I want to accomplish with the book? So really it was that question. And then um, as I thought about that uh, in, in church life, so having pastored uh, in two different churches as a lead pastor and then another church as a youth pastor before that, but when I started pastoring, it was the time when, and this, you know, this goes back a ways, but Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area was uh, was going strong. Saddleback Church in California, you know, the, it was hot. And then Mars Hill was coming on the scene and just the exponential growth and the high-profile ministry. And so, you know, everybody's thinking about growth. How do you grow? What, what causes a church to grow? And people were copying those formulas, using those as models. And I, in my heart, I wanted to know what the Scripture says about church growth because I really desired to follow a biblical model and implement biblical principles. And I just kept coming back to Ephesians 4. 
And over and over, Ephesians 4, I can look at my sermon record and see, you know, Ephesians 4 in there, preached it so many times. And so that's where I went to, to think about this idea of a church, what the life of the church should look like, growth in the church, what the model for that is, and the contributing factors. And so all of that uh, was kind of a formula, the elements of those coming together to produce the thriving church. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I really love about it is that it really is based upon Scripture. Uh, you're working through one text as well as you're kind of piecing that together. Instead of cherry-picking a passage here or a passage there, you go to one passage for your overall argument, and then you do support it from other texts, but that it's like an exposition of Ephesians chapter 4. I think that's one of the real strengths of your book and one of the things that I've appreciated about, and one of the things that I know that some of our pastors in the fellowship have appreciated about it as well. Uh, it's been a topic and uh, a functions well as a Bible study, uh, because I think it's like 13 chapters. It's like one whole so Sunday school quarter where a group of men or uh, a Sunday school could work through it. And some of our churches have done that, and I think it's been really helpful for them. Yeah, there's a lot of good things in this book. And my question has really nothing to do with the content of the book. But before I ask that question, I do have some comments on the content of the book. Uh, and so you mentioned, you know, you mentioned some very famous churches, uh, Saddleback, Mars Hill, and it's an explosion of, of growth. And I just, I really liked your emphasis on how growth happens. And earlier in the book, I think it's chapter seven or eight, you talk about how it's really the pastor preaching truth. And the, the quote, it's, uh, and just a side note, I read this a couple of years ago. And what I like to do when I read is I open a Google Doc and I just put the headings of all the chapters and then I just take notes. I put quotes, things like that while I read. And this is for students listening. This is why you should do this. That's, I actually have record of the last time I opened that Google Doc before today was January 6th of 2020. And I was like, okay, let's pull this open. And it was like I had read the book in about 10 minutes. It was awesome. All these quotes, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And so you should be doing that when you read through books. You should have some way of recording what you're thinking while you read, and it's going to bless you down the road, and that's what it did for me today. But there's a lot of good quotes here, but page 70, as you're talking about pastors preaching, you say this, preachers of the word can always trust the text. And it's not in the sense, the sense of it is the text is always true, and if you preach the text, you're preaching the truth. Later on in the book, you say that one of the main nutrients of church growth, nutrient number one, is truth. And I think it's in that chapter where you define growth as the continual progress toward the goal of resembling Christ's grace and truth in order to represent him in the world. And I just like the flow of, well, how does a church grow? The pastor preaches the text, which is true, and then that truth is reproduced in the person, in the body, and as that's happening together, the body is growing. And I just thought the flow of that was, it's, it was, it's true. You just followed the text, and, and it was, it's good. So thank you for that. Um, there's a lot of good nuggets that I'd like to comment on. But here's my question. So you had a burden to write this book. You had a publisher, someone who reached out to you and said, hey, what do you want to write on? So once you decided, I'm going to write this book, and here's the, here's the goal, the target, what was the process like? 
how did you get from the idea of the thriving church to the end, which is the book we're holding? Like, how, walk me through that. I'll back up a little bit because when I was pastoring, I actually attempted to turn sermons into into a manuscript, right, for for a book. And I even had an administrative assistant who transcribed, so she would listen to my sermons and transcribe them for me. And so I, I looked at those, and I thought, this, you can't read this stuff. It's just so different from the way you read as opposed to how you listen or, or you know, process something audibly. So, so when I started writing The Thriving Church, I knew I was going to have to start over. So yes, the research and the basic framework and some of the content was based on sermons that I had preached, but I couldn't just kind of somehow, you know, transition those over into a manuscript. I had to start over. So I, I studied through the text some more, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and uh, definitely used those sermons. I had all those documents, all that material but uh, did more commentary work, just, you know, trying to, to refine all that, and then just started writing from scratch, basically. So, so just kind of clearing my mind and going at it, okay, what's, uh, how am I going to communicate all this? And then also there's a difference, I think, in how you engage interest and hopefully, you know, carry readers with you in writing versus by speaking because you have so many advantages of eye contact and expression and all that. And you just can't do that in writing. So, so trying to make it conversational. Um, so that's part of the, the the new approach, the fresh approach as well. But beyond that, um, so so yes, uh, you know, pulling, compiling that material from sermons, restudying the passage, kind of having a fresh start, referring to the sermons and using the basic structure that I had and the principles. Then it's a matter of time, and just sheer labor. So writing is labor. I actually, somewhere Tim Challies in one of his uh, posts talked about writing, and he said, writers write. That's it. You know, hey, you uh, can't, I want to be a writer. Guess what? You're going to have to write. <laughs> Tim okay. Challies, if you're, if you're listening to this, we'd love to have you on the podcast. There you go. There Give you me go. a phone call. Yeah. yeah. So, so you got to write, you know, and you guys have done papers, and you know, it's labor. It is sheer labor, and that's what it is. It's just laboring over every word, every phrase, every sentence. So I would get up early in the morning, you know, start at 4, 4.30 in the morning, write for a couple hours, and then come into school. Summers, um, you know, having some blocks of time, weeks or whatever, where I would say, okay, in the mornings I'm going to write. And that helps me a lot. I can't do it in 20 minutes, you know. You don't sit down and crank out three pages, you know. It just It's just labor. It's laborious. And so just a lot of time at it. And then revising, that's the other thing about writing, is it's just you write and then you revise and you revise and you revise. And then guess what? Writers write, editors edit. So they tell you you've got to change stuff. Like, <laughs> wait a minute, this is my baby. This is my darling, you know. Yeah. Don't mess with this. You're like, no, you got to change this. They even changed the title. Um, so things like that. What was the original title? Uh, the uh, Hold on, now I've forgotten. Um, the, the Growing Body. That's what it was, mm. The Growing Body. Yeah, yeah, and they had some reasons. And once once they communicated that, and and I said, you know, it's kind of like oh, I don't know. And I was like, okay, I trust you guys. And it's a whole lot better. The thriving church. Yeah. I mean, who wants to read the growing body, right? But the thriving <laughs> church, man, I wanna I wanna have a thriving church. So yeah, there's things like just realizing that there's a lot of changes, a lot of editing that goes into it, and uh, just just keeping at it, you know. So did you when you were writing? Did you have a word count goal? I didn't. 
I, I would set sort of uh, accomplishment goals, like I want to write a chapter, you know, over the next few weeks or whatever. But I didn't, yeah, that doesn't really motivate motivate me very well. Was um, the 13 chapters like you, or was that like, we want this in 13 chapters so then it works as a Bible study or a quarterly? They didn't ask for it that way. Mm-hmm. That was more my idea because I, I wanted it to fit that. It and makes so, it a lot easier for churches. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, makes it something that's useful. You know, it's interesting. There's like a romanticized view of writing where you're going to sit down get struck with inspiration. You're just going to write it all in one shot. Yes. And and all the things that I've written, creative, whatever, it's it's literally what you said. You write the thing mm-hmm. and then you just edit that thing and revise it for yes. so long. And sometimes it doesn't even look the same. Right. Um. So yeah, the, the writing is labor. I'm going to remember that quote. Yeah. That's a, a beautiful quote, a beautiful picture of it. So you've seen the pictures, you know, so somebody takes a picture of their laptop and a cup of coffee and maybe a little journal <laughs> and a coffee shop. Oh, that's writing. You yep. know, I want to yep. write. If I just could have that scene, I'll be inspired. <laughs> It doesn't happen. I've tried no. it, right? So, so you still have to think, right? You still have to Amen. type words in, and uh, but it, it is. It's it's labor, and um, but it's yeah, it's worth it. Well, listener, if you have an affinity to write and you you enjoy it, uh, push through the difficulty and and start writing and use that gift for the Lord because mm-hmm. uh, that's it's it's the hard work I think that you don't mm-hmm. see on that. And and it is there's there's joy. I don't want it sure. to sound oh, like yeah. it's it's yep. uh, you know completely painful there's joy in it you know as well so absolutely yep so uh i find it i I enjoyed especially chapter six in it um the quote that i latched on to is right at the beginning you're you you quote that tom rayner survey that's Mm -hmm. just amazing about how many hours tom rayner's deacons thought he should be spending right and uh it was he wouldn't have been able to work and actually function at that church and so he was asking the question what are pastors supposed to do And so you said this, you said, everyone has ideas of what the pastor should do, but don't you think we should find out what God says our expectations of our pastor should be and align our expectations with his? In fact, the scriptures give a pretty clear description of a pastor's primary responsibilities. I really appreciated that thought because I do think many times people critique their church or their pastor and it's like wildly inaccurate things. It's like not related to what the church do like, oh, we're not big enough or our church isn't nice enough or whatever. Um, but in the rest of this pa- chapter, you go through the point of like the role of the pastor is to equip. I really appreciate it. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about like wh- how the pastor equips and how that's different than maybe some of those other, mo- other models you were talking about earlier? Yes. And uh, in, in the chapter, I do a word study, I guess you'd call it some background on that word equip and that uh, the, the meaning there is to restore something to its right condition so it can fulfill its intended function. And we think of equipping as training. That would definitely be part of it. Teaching, definitely part of it. And I think in the context, the flow of that there, it's the word, the truth, as Charlie mentioned, is a big part of that. So yes, preaching and teaching the word, but there's a personal aspect of restoring people. So initially through the gospel, uh, people, you know, being restored to Christ, restored to the the condition that God created them and designed them to to have, to be whole in Christ, and then restored to to be able to fulfill their intended function in the body of Christ, which is the context there. So the church, so teaching truth, but truth in a way that that intersects with their lives, applies to them, and helps them to be restored. And just a quick um, summary: the word is used, the word equip is used. 
of uh, mending fishing nets. So when Jesus came on, the disciples, they're mending their nets. That's the same word. It's used of uh, in, in Greek literature of uh, refitting a, a weathered ship that's been out to sea. It's battered by storms. They bring it back in and refit it. It's also used of, um, of setting a broken bone. So it's used in medical as a medical term. So, and, and I know we can't, you know, draw a meaning from all the necessarily the uses, but it gives kind of a sense of what might be in people's minds as they hear that word. And definitely a pastor is involved in people's lives, restoring them in those ways from their torn and broken and battered condition by sin, by life, by the world, to their intended function. And for a believer, you know, who goes out week by week working, you know, dealing with their flesh, all that, dragging themselves in on a Sunday, man, I need some restoration. And so the pastor has the opportunity to, through the Word and through his personal pastoral care, to, to do that restoring work. But it's equipping them for the work of ministry, right? Not just so they feel better or you know, things uh, seem to be smoothing out, but so they can fulfill their intended function of doing the work of building up the church and bringing growth in the church. It was, it was just really nice to read. Um, I think that it seems like sometimes people assume I like for evangelism, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> sorry about that, bring my friends to church and then mm. the pastor will share the gospel mm. or, yes. Hey, this person, in the community is hurting. Hey, go and talk to my pastor. And I, I'm sure you wouldn't be opposed to that, but this sense is more like, Hey, you, the pastor, should be helping me to be ready to go out into the world in the Great Commission and all that. So, yes, absolutely. I really, I really appreciate the chapter and the overall flow of the book myself. Yeah, just before we move on to the main content of the podcast, uh, any any just general thoughts you want people to know about your book? What is growth in the church? That's the question that I endeavor to answer, and I believe Ephesians four one to sixteen does answer. And then, what causes growth? And then how can a church member contribute to the growth of, of their church? And those are the questions I try to answer from the passage and uh, hopefully do. And so hope that the book can be an encouragement and help to pastors, church members, churches, and that's what the intent of it is. So thank you guys for letting me talk about it here. Thanks yeah. for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming. We will, we will have you back yeah. so we can have you for a full, a full episode in the future sometime. I look but, forward uh, to it. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, you can talk about whatever you want. You don't have to talk about your book. You can talk okay. about anything. So, <laughs> thanks. Um, now we'll, uh, if you uh, if you're still with us, you can transition right into the the main <laughs> content of the uh, of the podcast, which is me, Charlie, talking about Dorothy Sayers and oh, her essay, "The one. Lost Tools so of Learning." So, it's so good. Uh, enjoy that as you uh, are still in like the first week or second week of school. Let's have a conversation about education. And what I mean when I say education is formal education. So in America, depending on the age you are, you're, you're probably going to some type of school. So four or five years old, they start in this thing called preschool, and then you go to kindergarten, and then you go to you know middle school, and then junior high, and then high school, and then you go to, you know, now it's like, oh, go to college, go to college, and, or the universities or whatever. And, uh, and then even crazier people will get master's degrees in certain subjects and doctoral <laughs> degrees in certain subjects. And, uh, that's kind of how education works in America is you, you know, we start training the kid from a very early age and you start progressing and progressing. And it seems like the farther you go, the more specific your education becomes, right? So like, you, but think back to like middle school. Like, what did you learn when you were in middle school? 
or even like kindergarten. Like we kind of categorize and break things up into subjects. Like we're going to learn math and we're going to learn science and we're going to learn history or social studies or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay. Now I have a book in front of me called The Lost Tools of Learning. And so think about it, you know, The Lost Tools of Education, I think would be a good working title for it. And it's written by Dorothy Sayers, and she is critiquing modern education, the, the, the ideas of education in, in, in Western thought. And her premise is that we actually educate kids incredibly differently than we used to. And used to meaning like five, six, seven hundred years ago. Like the way that a student would have been trained, say like in the medieval ages, is really different than this modern idea of subjects. And she's going to talk about that in this little little book. It, I say book. It's actually originally was an essay. And she's going to heavily critique modern education. And she's highlighting really one point. And I'm going to bring that point out in some quotations. Okay, so let's read. This is on page three of the, of the GLH publishing version that I found. It's actually a really nice little like pamphlet version. It's not, it's not long. It's essay. It'd be like 20 pages. Has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it has ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined. So people are more well-read, people know how to read and write more than any time in the history of the world. But people are dumb because they listen to advertisements that are lying and deceiving them. Does that, you ever, you ever think about that? Okay, so here's, here's another thought from so Dorothy. Good. That okay? never happens in our culture. <laughs> yeah, hold on, so it gets better. That is here's, another, here's another quote. <laughs> Do you ever find that young people, when they have left school, not only forget most of what they have learned, parentheses, that is only to be expected, but forget also or betray that they have never really known how to tackle a new subject for themselves. Are you often bothered by coming across grown-up men and women who seem unable to distinguish between a book that is sound, scholarly, and properly documented, one that is to any trained eye or very conspicuously none of these things? So the idea is, you know, we talk about good books on this podcast and we, we talk about why books are good. You ever notice that people like can't analyze whether mm -hmm. something is good or not, like a book, let alone if they read to begin with, but they actually can read and not understand what they're reading at all. Hmm. Okay, here's another quote from Dorothy. Do you often come across people for whom all their lives a quote subject remains quote a subject divided by watertight bulkheads from all other subjects? so that they experience very great difficulty in making an immediate mental connection between, let us say, algebra and detective fiction, sewage disposal and the price of salmon, cellulose and the distribution of rainfall, or more generally, between such spheres of knowledge as philosophy and economics or chemistry and art. Do you, do you ever notice that people have really learned subjects, but they're incredibly disconnected from each other? Like they can't synthesize information. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And it really comes to a head in this next one where she's going to quote this guy. 
uh, it's it's a review. Sir Richard Livingston's Some Tasks for Education. It's, so this is, she is quoting this. The quote from the Tasks of Education. More than once, the reader is reminded of the value of an intensive study of at least one subject so as to learn the meaning of knowledge and what precision and persistence is needed to attain it. Yet, there is elsewhere full recognition of the distressing fact that a man may be master in one field and show no better judgment than his neighbor anywhere else. He remembers what he has learned, but forgets altogether how he learned it. So the idea is that you could actually master one of these subjects, but then you're kind of just dumb in everything else. She's like, so this, these, th- there's four quotes there where she's like identifying something about the pupil that is being educated. Like there's actually, yeah, they can read and write, but they're kind of dumb. And, and yeah, they read books, but they can't <laughs> tell the book is good. And yeah, they read books, but they can't connect any of the ideas from these books together. And yeah, they might even be a doctor in a subject, but ask them a simple question about life and they're like inept. She's like, have you ever noticed that? And, you know, if, if you walk around, you know, the mall, which people don't go to malls. I, I don't want to characterize Walmart. But walk around, around Walmart or, like, the store and just start conversing with people. And you'll realize that this, is, this happens big time. Mm-hmm. People spend from, you know, let's say, age 5 to age 20, 15 years. That would be three quarters of their life being educated. And what do they really know? And then she really brings it to a head here. This is page seven of my copy. She says, Is not the great defect of our education today a defect traceable through all the disquieting symptoms of trouble that I have mentioned? So like, yeah, these are just symptoms of the real cause. Is not the real defect that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. And what she's going to advocate in this essay is that we actually need to go back to teaching, educating in a different philosophical way. We need to go back to teaching how to think, not what the content is. Education isn't just about the note, the content of the class. It's actually how you think about the content and synthesize it with all the other contents. Now, she is like giving us illustration of what seems like a really modern group of people like that can't discern advertisements. You know, maybe they're just running wild with what they see on social media. Everyone has a grandma that reposts something on Facebook and it's super awkward. She doesn't understand the reference, right? Everybody's got that. It's a Babylon B article, but yeah. she thinks it's real news. Can't, can't discern that Babylon B is, is, is sad. Or it's a CNN article and they can't discern it's no, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna get censored <laughs> this is where the podcast is no longer heard because our government has shut us down Stop. keep okay. going so let's ask this question when did dorothy sayers deliver it was a speech an essay that she gave in a speech when did she deliver that speech a year i have to guess the year guess the year man and i'll tell you let's play a game who can be closest? Well, it was in the 1800s. It was not in the 1800s. I'm going to say 1935. That's actually that's way closer than the 1800s. Well, she was, knew C.S. Well, Lewis. She did know C.S. Lewis. She was a so, compadre. I don't, I don't know any of this. She I was a compadre of the Inklings at Oxford University. 
And she delivered this speech originally as a talk at Oxford in 1947. Ooh. So she, 60 plus years ago, is identifying that maybe our education's not working. So just wrap your mind around that. A kid that went to preschool, the year she gave that speech, would be retiring right now. So the fruits of this educational system are all over American culture. Are we missing something about education? And I think the answer would be yes. Exactly what we're missing is not, you know, we can't, we don't have time to go into that. You're opening up a huge can yeah. of worms. But so we can say there's a problem. Here's the question I want to say. One, do you agree with her that we're not actually training kids to think? Yes. Okay, so we agree. Yeah, I can, totally agree. I can agree with that. So real quick. We can't reform the educational system in Western America and Western thought today. Not Western well, America, just America. Oh yeah, thank you. I was thinking Western thought in America because we are in Western, that right. Western branch. So what do we do as individuals to actually train ourselves to think well? What would be things that we could do, listeners of our podcast, us here at the table, what could we do if we've been raised in this educational system where we've, I mean, that was me. I went to public school. And all I did was yep. memorize subjects. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until, I'll say boldly, until I was in seminary that maybe the way I look at life isn't right. Maybe the, the, the normal currents of my thought aren't what they should be. Yeah, I would say the same. It wasn't really till seminary that I really started to be become a, so what, a better thinker. What happened? Like what? what, what how could we synthesize this to a listener? Like, how do you train the way you think? Well, it's, it, it's, I mean, I can talk about some things that we're even trying to do with our children now. Like what? Well, for example, like my first child, um, I was, I knew that I wanted him to learn how to read and yes. I, mm -hmm. I wanted him to, um, begin reading soon because I wanted him to read God's word and I wanted him to read the to, to have daily devotions. And so my, my uh, motivation was really good. However, I really dumped him into reading too soon. And as a result, he hated it. Okay. And that's a key component connected to what Sayers is talking about. And it was something that we had to work on uh, later on. And it was in like second or third grade with him and even my other children, and how they hated school, like they just abhorred it. And and so I was like, this is the big problem. The problem isn't the learning and, and that they get the content. The problem is that they don't want to learn. They don't like to do it. And so we made some, some significant changes around that point in our education of our children. What, what changes did you make? I'm well, curious. Well, one thing was I preached to my kids that they need to like learning. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's huge. Helpful. Rebuke, rebuke the desire. <laughs> that's good. Okay, because in Proverbs chapter 1, you have, and this wasn't planned, but whatever, here we go. Um, a wise man will hear and increase learning. This is Proverbs 1, 5. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their 
riddles. So this individual, they want to learn. The wise man increases learning, and this is what you're supposed to be. Well, what if you don't like learning? What if you don't want instruction? Okay, well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, what do they do? They despise wisdom and instruction. instruction. Mm -hmm. They don't want to learn. So if my child does not want to learn, call it what it is, it's sin. Okay, and so... Um, now, now I would say that the problem, I mean, that was, that was one, one way of addressing it, but that was still only just one little way because really it was my fault. Of course it was a little way. way. Brother. (laughs) We both got him. I, I fostered this in my child, uh, in, in, uh, not, not intentionally, unintentionally, but, um, so anyway, then what did I, I tried to do? Well, one thing that I started doing is I started reading to my children. I made an intentional effort to sit down, and Tuesday nights became like a reading night where I would read to them. I read through the Wing Feather with them. I'm reading through Lord of the Rings right now. We've been working on that one a while. I read through some Chronicles of Narnia. The point is just to, that they would see Dad reading and enjoying it. Can I, okay, can I jump in on this? I've got I think, some more points, but that's why you brought up a topic that like we could talk we could four talk. episodes I, on. Here's what Sayers says, and they actually they actually make a, an appeal. She makes an appeal to work a, around the desires and the abilities of the age group. Right. So with our so later like with children, with a younger student, yeah, you can't ask them to like do deep thinking because they're not ready for that yet. Right. So So you need to use some building blocks to get them ready for that. And I think the way that you implement those building blocks is you're trying to increase their desire for the style of learning you're employing. Correct. So with my later children, we have not pressured them to read, especially when they're five or six, because really they don't have the ability to do it yet. That's one of the things that I learned. So with my oldest child, I had him going at four and I needed to wait until he was like five, six, seven. And now my fourth son is reading actually quite a bit and reading pretty well. And he likes it. And then my daughter, she's just starting to pick up some words, but she's like five. And I think the public school system would say she's behind, but I would say, no, she's not behind. Of course, the public school system would say that because they're working on a completely different educational We need to let Andy talk. When I was cleaning windows, I was cleaning windows way back in the day for a lady who was a retired public school teacher. She taught for 30 plus years, retired, and now she was a tutor and she lived here in Ankeny and she was tutoring students. And I said, oh, wow, a long time. I said, man, you must have seen some changes in education. And I only knew like the tip of the iceberg of what was going on. And she's like, oh, yeah, it, it's just been, it's so different than when I started 30, 40, 40 years ago, maybe. And I said, really? I said, is like, what is it like? And I, all I knew is standardized testing was an issue. So I threw that out to make conversation. And I got a free education on how bad it was. And she actually retired, I think, three years early because she hated it so much. And this is what she said. She said, back in the day, if you had a class of third graders and they weren't understanding the subject, you'd slow down and work with them where they were at. By the end of the year, you might not cover the whole third grade textbook, but you would help that class get to the next place they needed to go. She said once standardized testing got put in place, everyone had to be at the exact same spot at the exact same time at the exact same age, and kids are just not ready to do that. And it got so vexing for her because she had to move the kid forward because no one's going to get put behind. And so I think, I think this age issue is a deal. Like every student is different. And so I even think that affects some 
college classrooms. I think, and I think what Sayers is going to say, which just really quickly, we're, we're going to come back to this at another episode. Uh, this essay of Dorothy Sayers is really a foundational artifact in, in what would become and what is now in America, the classical Christian school movement. And there are some other evangelical people who have written books on her essay and that's kind of become the foundation of a classical education and maybe the return to approaching the education of a child in a different way than like a common core or a standardization. And they would actually say that a young child is not good at thinking. And what is reading? Reading is thinking, like to it read is, and synthesize. Absolutely. And so they say, you know what a young child's really good at? Soaking. Yeah. They're a sponge. Yep. They learn things by watching the parent. They learn things by hearing the parent. The parent says a word, and then all of a sudden, that two-year-old is saying it. Mm -hmm. Wow, how'd they do that? They're a sponge. And they're like, okay, so here's what we want to do. We want to get as much into that sponge as possible. Yes. And, and so a, a heavy dose of memorization is done at an early age, but then even what is memorized is important. They want them to memorize things from a logical system of language, like Latin or Greek very logical syntax-based languages. Like Hebrew. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so they do that so that, that later on in life, they have the building blocks of logic in the language, and then they can start synthesizing it as they develop as a thinker. And that's So the first part of, of the, the school would be the memory, and then they would get into logical flow. But anyway, we don't want to get into that. We'll come back to it. But it's worth thinking about for you, have you ever been taught how to think or have you been taught subjects? And maybe bounce that idea around in your mind with where you've been educated. And then you're like, you know what? Maybe I don't process and think the way I should. Let's start reading some good books and maybe thinking that through, thinking, thinking through so that we can maybe have a desire for learning that's not uh, necessarily found in, in our culture. So simple, not really a simple idea or thought, but a short discussion on it. We'll come back to it another time. And uh, my children, we didn't start out doing classical uh, education, but we picked it up around third grade or something like that. So um, this is a model that's actually been adopted by uh, some of the thinklings and uh, something that I would strongly recommend that you should consider. There's different ways that it can it can be fleshed out in a co-op or a full school, but uh, I would encourage you to consider it and look into it in your area. And, it, and we'll be careful to say, it's not like one is wrong and one is right. You know, there's a lot of ways to learn and learning is an individual pursuit. And as a parent to child, you, you're overseeing an individual pursuit. You can't learn for them, but you can guide their learning. And maybe the way you do that affects the way they think long-term. Just, uh, and so our family's doing this also, and my wife has read a trilogy of books explaining the classical model. And if you want to jump into that whole discussion, an example book that will tell you like how to do this is called The Core, Teaching Your Child the Foundations of Classical Education by Lee Bortons. And uh, it's, it's really good. And it, there's actually a trilogy, but that's the first one if you want to get started. Be a good read. Here's our final thought from God's Word. Uh, I'm actually going to build off of this idea of education 
and from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I actually want to discuss Deuteronomy 6, 4 and uh, Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 19, but today I'm going to hit Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, and then Deuteronomy 6, 20 through the end of the chapter. So Deuteronomy 6, 6 starts, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What we have here is how you're supposed to live the law of the Lord. And uh, that living out the law of the Lord is something that your children are going to see. You are the first testimony to the law of the Lord. You are the one that they see, and you're the one that they're going to end up questioning. And you have in this description, uh, first in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently. The word there for teach has this repetitive idea. You know, when you, we teach our children, it's not just like a one-and-done kind of a thing. They forget or they disobey and need instruction again. Um, it's something that has to be done repetitively. Furthermore, the word diligently here is a great descriptor as well. It's a lot easier just to look the other way and to be able to stay seated on the couch or busy about whatever task that you're busy about. It's a lot more work when you see your child sinning that you then have to get up and deal with it. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of being lazy um, because we want to enjoy our own pleasures and comforts. So these two descriptions are great descriptions about how we go about with this philosophy of education. It's going to take repetition, and it's got to be done diligently. And then, how is it done? We have shall talk of them while you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. There are four verbs there, and they're basically all-encompassing all of your life. Okay, I'm going to read through them again. You'll talk, with, um, you'll talk of them when you... One, sit in your house, and what would be the opposite of sitting? Walking. And when you walk by the way, okay, so it's a merism. So whether you're sitting or walking, you know, whatever you're, wherever you're going or sitting and doing, when you lie down and when you rise up. That doesn't mean you have a morning devotion and an evening devotion. It's just all of the time. When you're lying down, when you're rising up, all the time. You see, your very life is a manifestation to your children of a worldview, and it needs to be a manifestation of God's worldview. And that's what we have then in the next couple of verses here. Uh, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. The Jewish people have taken this literally, and they have this tefillin that they wrap around their, their hand. That's not the message that's being communicated here. The things that you do with your hand guess what? Those things you do should be governed by God's law, and your children are going to see that. Uh, so uh, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And the Jewish people, they'll put this little box on their forehead, and that's the law of the, God, law of the Lord before their eyes. That's not the idea at all. The message of this text is, is clearly to, that the things that you see need to be filtered through the truths from God's Word. So everything that we see is, is going to be filtered through the precepts, the commands of the Lord. And then it continues in verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. Your house should be governed by the teaching of God's word and on your gates. And of course, in the Jewish dispen well, the 
Old Testament dispensation, uh, the, the gates, the city, should be governed by the commands of the Lord. Um, and so you have this all-encompassing nature of the, the, the Christian, well, how we would call it now the Christian worldview, and how it, 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 it's every part of your life. Um, this builds off of, by the way, Deuteronomy 6.4, which I'm going to talk about again in a future podcast, about how your whole life is supposed to be completely devoted to the Lord. And this individual in this passage, guess what? Their life is completely devoted to the Lord. Everything they do, everything they see, the entire um, um, possessions, all the possessions that God has given them, their house, is governed by God's Word. This is the way that it's supposed to be done. And then that's to be passed on to one's child. In verse 20, so I've skipped a section there. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for a good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to observe all these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It gives the, like, this is what you're supposed to tell your child. <laughs> Could it be any clearer? This is what the children of Israel were supposed to do. And similarly, this is what we are supposed to do. We should rejoice in the victories that God has accomplished in the past, that the Lord is a true, living, uh, real, um, transcendent, but yet imminent God. And this God needs to not just be uh, my God, but it needs to be the God of my child. And, and so how do we go about doing that? Well, I actually really like the classical model, but what I've noticed within the classical model is there's a lot of pride and arrogance um, because there's a lot of unbelievers within the, the movement still too. Uh, so um, what, I, what we want to foster in our children is not that pride, not that arrogance, but that humility and uh, recognizing that we are yet nothing. We are simply a humble servants of the Lord. And I pray that my children would grow up to love the Lord, to fear him, and to obey his commandments, not out of compulsion, but out of love and fear. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.